and has worked as a police officer since 2007. 2020 was a record year for suicide of police officers in America. 236 suicides and only approximately 170 in-line duty deaths. Officers know the risks of the job and suicide should not be one of them. They are supposed to be the ones responding to the suicide calls. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Worked as a police officer since 2007, and before that he was in the United States Marine Corps. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 and 2005. After an honorable discharge from the Marine Corps, he earned his bachelor's degree and entered law enforcement. This is going to be one interesting interview with Scott, and I am so glad he is on Never Ever Give Up Hope today. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Carol. It's great to be here, and yes, for the audience, never, ever give up hope. So my first thing that I would like to ask you is, as a law enforcement officer and as a Marine, I know that you have had to face huge struggles. You shared that in your story, in your bio, in your books, etc. So I'd like you, if you would please, to paint us a picture of some of the things that you have had to face, including PTSD, depression, anxiety, and sadly, addiction. It all started back in 2001. I went to Marine Corps boot camp at Paris Island a week after graduating high school. So I was 17 years old. And I mean, not, not, even, not even a full week, if I remember correctly. I go down there. It's obviously a rude awakening where I, as a 17-year-old, am not as big of a deal as I thought I was, like any other teenager would. And then I... I learned a lot about discipline and teamwork, and it obviously built me into a Marine, a young Marine. My first day coming back from boot camp leave, because I went June, July, and August, my first day back as an official Marine reporting into my first assignment to be trained was September 11th, 2001. Oh, my goodness. I, oh, yeah. I got off the bus at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and a Marine came up to us, new Marine getting off the bus and said, hey, there's been a plane that hit the World Trade Center. And like a lot of people thought at first, it was an accident. Anyway, we spent all day glued to the TV. But I remember calling my dad and I said, dad, I, I have a feeling I'm not going to go straight through college in the reserves. I'm going to get activated at some point for some war of some type. 
And he said, no, we'll probably just do a massive air campaign. I don't foresee anything in your future regarding combat. Well, fast forward to 2003, Hmm. it happened where our company got mobilized. All of us got mobilized to, for the effort for operation Iraqi freedom. And I was there February through August, I believe, 2003. And it's hard to believe it was almost 20 years ago. Yes. But I'll never forget the first night we landed in Kuwait and we had to take drive the Humvees from the Kuwait airport to the base. I saw watchtowers, w- camp watchtowers with armed Marines manning the, gar- manning the towers. And then they said to us, hey, there have been people to shoot at the convoys. However, the Kuwaiti police have our back. They're going to be, be patrolling with us. I'm not knocking the Kuwaiti police. I don't know them, but I just didn't feel good. That, that didn't really bring me much comfort, considering they didn't give us any ammo. We rode <laughs> through Kuwait. Oh, I know. We rode through Kuwait, got to the Iraq border where the camp was safely. Thank goodness. But that was like the first time where I thought, wow, I could die. And what teenager at 17, 18, right, 19, right. I, was, I think I was 19. What teenager at 19 has to think I could die? Because at that age, you, you're thinking, I, I'm going to live forever, or you know, the whole world's in front of me kind of thing. But anyway, that was that first initial exposure of, of, oh, shoot, this is real. And then the Iraq war started, and some Scud missiles went over our camp that Saddam Hussein's army was firing to the, at those of us in Kuwait. And that was nerve-wracking. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm not going to put up a tough man front. I was nervous about that. Fortunately, made it home from that deployment. And then went back to college and then I wasn't even, I did a full year, full college year and then uh, started fall semester, finished that one. And then in the spring semester of 2005, about halfway through the semester, I get a call. Hey, you're going back. Called my dad, said, dad, I'm going back. He was like, dang it, we got to do this again. So anyway, we kind of knew it was coming, but Mm -hmm. anyway, my brother was already over there, believe it or not. And he was saying it's, it's crazy. We were out in the Anbar province, and it was nicknamed the Wild Wild West. June of 2005, there was a close mortar attack on the convoy I was on, and mortars landed to my left and to my right very close. Mm. And the concussion of it kind of shifted my legs to the center of the vehicle. That was the moment that almost killed me. Wow. And it was a miracle from God that we survived. And I'll never forget, I, I in the midst of that mortar attack, in which the truck that stopped in front of us, and the truck that was in front of us, he stopped. He stopped. You're not supposed to do that. You're a sitting target. Mm-hmm. But he right. stopped because he panicked. And I got on the radio. I said, you've got to move. And all I could feel was this overwhelming sense of fear because the mortars weren't stopping. They kept coming in, and we are dead still. And I remember looking down and just praying. I said, God, please help us out of this situation. And I looked out the windshield, and a Huey helicopter was flying right towards us. And it went over us and went towards the town where the mortars were coming from, and the mortar fire stopped. And when I said that, prayer, and, I, and we were not scheduled for air support at all during that convoy. But when I said that prayer, I, I didn't feel alone. I didn't. Wow. Like, I knew it was going to be okay, and we were going to get through it. And we did, thank God. No one got hurt. There was a tiny piece of shrapnel that hit the tire that was on my side of the vehicle. And the Marine that I'm still in touch with to this day, he told me that he remembers looking back and he just thought, how in the world did you guys survive that attack? That incident bothered me. And then there were some more incidents where life flashed before my eyes. But that incident in particular was one that when I came home, I physically came home, but I did not mentally come home. Really? Now, of course, I, 
I didn't know this at the time. I, no one had told us, hey, you're going to see things that your brain is literally not wired to see. Mm-hmm. Nobody told us any of this. So for all I know, for a year after I'm home, everybody else is the problem. Well, you're the one that's impatient. You're the one that doesn't know what it's like to be over there. Why, why do you think this way? You know, Why mm-hmm. are you calling me judgmental? You're the mm-hmm. one that needs to see things for how they are. And my, my relationships with family, friends were deteriorating horribly. But I didn't know what was going on. And then it got so bad with anger and judgment that my my, my dad once again said, I'm losing my family. I'm losing you and your brother. Please, I have found someone who can help you. Please just go. And we did. We agreed to it. It was was through neuro-linguistic programming. And after a two-hour session, the flashbacks, the nightmare, the nightmares, the anxieties, the hot flashes, the anger. It really subsided a lot. Wow. But that was my Amazing. First, but the, oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. But that was my first encounter with PTSD, symptoms of PTSD. It's a real thing. And it doesn't matter how tough someone is. The brain cannot handle repeated exposure, whether they be thinking about it or they're actually living it, and, and you not do anything about it in a healthy way. The brain's not meant for it. So I thought I was a tough Marine. Yeah, okay. I might have been a, a tough guy doing tough things, but – Sorry, I can't outrun negative negative thinking, negative patterns, reliving a traumatic image or memory, and and that was my first encounter with it. We can, if you want to, we can flash forward or fast forward to law enforcement. Sure, that's fine. I, I felt a calling to get into law enforcement. I knew that I wanted to be someone to arrive when someone called nine one one because as a kid, my mom was with me one time when. We, she called 911 because a guy was being suspicious on our street, and, and we lived in a very small neighborhood where everyone knew each other, and we knew he didn't live there. And he, was, he was walking up to the doors, looking in windows. She called the police, and I just remember feeling like, I want them here. I want them here now to protect yeah. me, and that just kind of stuck with me my whole childhood, and then so I felt called to be in law enforcement. So I'm on the job for, for about three years, and I'm thinking – I'm a tough war veteran. I've been treated for PTSD. I have a whole career ahead of me. I'm loving this job. And I was. But then I got a call to go to a hotel where a man did not check out of his room on time and they didn't have any way of getting in touch with him. And I'll never forget, I walked up to the room with the maintenance man and the maintenance man used his card to go in the room, which he could do. I had to stay in the hallway. He opened that door. I didn't see anybody. I didn't see any suitcase. And I thought, yes, this guy's left. We'll just figure out where he went. No big deal. And, and and we'll just clear the call. But the bathroom light was on and that maintenance man walked in and I'll never forget the words. He hung himself hmm. and I knew I had a job to do, but I started having tension in my chest and my mind was racing like with what am I, what am I about to see? How am I going to handle it? But I had to push through that fear and anxiety because I, I had a job to do. So I walked in, went to the left to ask the man to step out, the maintenance man to step out. But then I saw this deceased individual who took his own life by suicide and my heart sank. I mean, as a, as a Christian man, I just couldn't fathom someone doing that. Like, cause I know that God brought me into this life. It is not my decision when I take myself out of it. And my heart sunk and the anxiety just came over me like crazy. And I got, I had like this debate while I was in that bathroom thinking, wait, 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 no, I'm a tough war veteran. I'm a tough police officer. Why is this bothering me so much? Do you think I told anyone? <laughs> Absolutely not. Right, of course. Because I'm a tough police officer. But weeks following that, I couldn't sleep. I would get nauseous. I would have anxiety. And 
And I just kept thinking about that man over and over and over again. And it was really bothering me. So that was my first exposure to reoccurring symptoms of PTSD and policing. But it also led to depression. And I would put on a good front at work, smiling with coworkers. But deep down, I was beginning to wonder, am I really making a difference? Am I only seeing the world for what it really is? Is it just evil everywhere? Because I was also dealing with a lot of habitual violent felons that would commit crimes, hurt people, and then get right back out after we get put right. them in jail. And that was depressing to see them just get right back out. And we have to deal with them constantly. And I've just started to question what I was doing and why I was doing it. And my spirituality started to suffer, which also led to a depressed mindset. So I could go on, but that's that's kind of the introduction into when I was exposed to it in the military and the Marines and then also in law enforcement. What about the addiction? That was about a year and a half into law enforcement where the unfortunately a lot of police officers are not trained. You will have you can have reactions. Now I'm no psychologist, I'm no doctor. I'm just speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. You will you can have reactions where you can't cope well if you do not make an active effort to do it. You just won't cope naturally with the ups and downs of the job from high action moments to getting home and having nothing to do or just sitting on your couch and watching TV, which is actually hurting you, your mental uh, strength. I unfortunately, and, and it's always embarrassing to say, but if it helps someone out of it, then so be it. I, I, am, I am a sinner just like everyone else. I unfortunately got addicted to pornography and it was a rush just like the job was, but I knew it was a sin, but I couldn't get away from it. And I realized I had an addiction and it was awful. I was thinking, wait, wait, no, I'm this perfect little Catholic boy. I can't be, I can't be addicted to this stuff. How did this happen? And I would just get onto myself time after time. Every time I would, I guess for lack of a better term, relapse, I would just get onto myself and I would say, okay, God, I'm not going to do it again. And then it would happen. So once again, I reached out to the doctor who treated me for the PTSD and through neurolinguistic programming. And he helped me get through that too. It was amazing. Uh, but it was also no good that he was kidding. a preacher. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's also good that he was he's a preacher as well. So he knew my highest level of thinking mm-hmm. was to point t- towards the highest source that we have, and, and that's God. And and I was able to disassociate and, and bring those dis- disturbing images to God, front and center, in my mind, in my heart, and let go of it. And he said, you just, have, you just haven't felt connected to God. And once once we kind of reestablish that connection, and obviously there's different arranging of neurons in the brain, which is part of the brain's messaging system, once he got through that, and then we went to the spiritual side of it, yes, it helped a lot. But like I said, it's it's embarrassing to say, but whatever. If I can be open, you know, when I'm open about it, if it helps just one person seek the help or to understand they're not alone, then so be it. Absolutely, and that's that's very humble. It's a humbling experience, you know, to to say that but yet through that it's it's so encouraging for somebody else so it needs to be said and if you can only help one person that would be awesome that's one person helped my next question first of all have were you married at this time no fortunately not okay and that was another incentive to to quit because i was I was about a year away from getting married, and I knew I was go- I was going to be married uh, to my to my wife, who, who's, who I'm currently married to, and I was like, I, I got to get this under control. That was the reason I reached out for help because okay. I was like, this is embarrassing. I cannot do this as a husband, and uh, so yeah, no, that's another reason why I got the assistance. 
the reason that I asked you that as well is because you had to make a tough decision and I think it was affecting your your marriage when you were a canine officer is that correct the job was affecting my marriage when I worked as a canine officer because yeah I let that job become my identity and I it was a dream come true to get on the canine unit. I had networked and put my foot in that door to show them I was serious for that canine position for at least at least seven years prior to me getting it. Oh my word. And I would go to canine training sessions and I would network with the canine officers. I mean, I, I was serious about it and I finally achieved it, but it became who I was. And I, people would say, what do you do? And rather than saying like most people do, you know, I work at Lowe's, I work at a hospital, I work at wherever. I would say, I am a canine officer. And it, it became me. I let it become <laughs> me, even though it, even though it never was me. <laughs> uh, and But it, my wife would say stuff like, can you not work off duty? Can you just be home with me when you're home? Like Mentally, I was still on, at work. I, I just blew it off. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I think I'm being a good husband. I wasn't. And then when our firstborn uh, came around, I wasn't present to him. I, I didn't make an effort to spend any extra time with him. I was busy thinking about canine stuff. And this happens to police where you just feel, you feel like it's you. You feel like, I don't know, you, that phrase bleed blue thick and through, which I tell people now, I tell officers now, no, if I were to cut you open, you'd bleed red. <laughs> so <laughs> there's none of that. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, I, I let it get, I let it get the best of me. And um, when, when she said, I'm having thoughts of not being with you, I knew that she was godly and the job was earthly. And I took, I made an, I took a vow to be with her till death do us part and for better or for worse. So I was not going to lose her over some job. So you made the decision and I did change your life. Very difficult a- for about a year. After, like I had to, I had to say goodbye to the police dog. And he and I were really, I mean, we were bonded. I mean, it was three and a half years and we were the last year he and I worked together. We had really hit our stride. I mean, we were doing, Amazing things, catching a lot of people. Hmm. It was really getting fun. Uh, now, don't get me wrong; there were stressful <laughs> moments, and the dog I had was psycho. I mean, he was absolutely psycho, <laughs> and he would make me mad as much as a toddler can make a parent mad. But, <laughs> but overall, we were we were doing a lot better and really hitting our our game. Uh, but I made that decision, and when I had to say goodbye to him, it was like saying goodbye to a family member. I mean, I cried and cried and I don't care who knows it I I did I, my heart was broken right but 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 my marriage was becoming fixed so looking back at it it was definitely yes. the right decision did you ever see him again I did a few times and then I know now where he lives and the owner his owner he lives in Texas and his owner will text me pictures of him Aww. so yeah I'll, that's I'll sweet see him and I'm, I'm I'm so happy for him. He's retired. I mean, obviously, and he's, he's just, uh, he is loving life right now. I couldn't oh, be more that's happy. awesome. We're going to take a short 30-second break. And when we come back, I want to talk about what's happened in this arena since lockdown. Because I know this is a whole other arena that police are now involved in. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and also the mental health fights that officers have, what they can do about it, the book that you have written. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. 
She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Welcome back. We're talking on Never Ever Give Up Hope with Scott Medlin. And he has shared in the first part of our interview today is some of the things that police officers have to endure, overcome, deal with, and the problems that come as a result of that. So this is where we want to talk a little deeper now because since the lockdown, from what I understand from Scott, is there has been an upsurge of mental health challenges. Could you talk a little bit about that, Scott? I think it really boils down to the fact that everybody has had to alter their life, especially whenever this thing first kicked off. The pandemic really hit us back in March of 2020. I was working as a school resource officer at an at a alternative school, and I'll never forget a teacher asking me on a Thursday, I believe, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to be in school next week? And I said, oh, no, no, we're, we're not going to be in school for a few weeks. They're going to let they're going to shut down school and this virus has to pass or die down. Well, I mean, obviously, we looking back, it's like, wow, we're it, a lot more happened than just two weeks to slow, right. uh, slow the curve or whatever. And I went back on patrol. And then the masks were my first impression of obviously we got concerned about getting the virus, which a lot of police officers have passed away because of getting COVID while working. And and the stats show that. But also when the masks started coming about, it was kind of hard as a police officer because our whole some of our whole job and and just executing that job without incident relies on building a rapport with people. And showing empathy and so much to that we yes, took for granted yes. is in facial expressions. And when you're talking to someone with a mask, I'm not going to argue whether they work or not, but it, it was it's tough to connect with people, in my opinion. And I know other officers feel the same way when you're just all you see is someone eye, someone's eyes. And it just kind of brought about another on the job stressor in one of the most already stressful jobs on the planet. Yes, that's it. Now, I left active policing in August of 2020 uh, for family reasons, and, and I've worked for the last year as a part-time police officer. Uh, but it's it, the, the pandemic has definitely made it so that not only do you have to go to work in uniform, which makes you a target, or drive a police car, which that's a big target because officers are getting ambushed now. Well, it, it, it appears they're getting ambushed still at, a, at an alarming rate. Hmm. That's nothing really new, unfortunately. But you, but then you have to deal with the five percent of the population, and some of them over and over and over again. And then nobody calls the police to tell, nobody calls the police to have them come over so they can say how great of a day they're having. <laughs> police, Sorry for laughing. Police, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're. It's, it's true though. Police, police are only called. And pretty much only interact with the public under negative circumstances. And that's whether it's a, 
a teenager who is thinking about taking their own life or a child who's been a victim of a horrific sexual assault or being called because someone just got shot in a parking lot and, and you arrive and you see that person literally take their last few breaths. It's already a stressful job, and then you have to, and then and then you have paperwork, policies, wondering whether or not your administration will support you if you're in a a high a high attention use of force incident. And I'm not justifying ones that were out of negligence right. or straight up ill will. Not justifying those, but it still runs through an officer's mind, even when they are justified and followed everything to the T. It's another stressor, and then now you worry about getting a virus that is new to everyone. It's it's just one more thing on the mind. And hence the mental health crisis. Oh, absolutely. What I, I didn't know and what I was not trained about when I started in law enforcement was, once again, just like when I was deployed to Iraq, you are going to see things. Your brain is not innately wired to see. Like Our brains, from what I've learned and from my experience being in the psychologist's office so much, <laughs> is <laughs> – the brain seeks comfort, it seeks nourishment, it seeks love, it seeks things that are pleasurable. Not once does the brain, when, when someone wakes up, not once does the brain think, let me let me uh, seek out some violence today. Let me seek out some blood and guts today. Let me seek out two people arguing with me right in the middle of it trying to defuse them. Absolutely not. So when there's repeated exposure to things that the brain is not innately wired to see or experience, obviously because some of it is traumatic, like seeing a person who's died in a vehicle crash or seeing someone wheeled away on an ambulance stretcher after they've been stabbed. That is not something that our eyes desire to see. And I know someone, I know some officers to this day will say, I'm tough. I'm good. I, I, I can handle that. Certain, certain officers are bothered by certain things. But when that happens repeatedly over and over and over again, it can start to wear on you. And plus, there's also a lot of negative, plus there's also a lot of negative talk in police departments, because think about it. Police officers are around negativity yes, out in the field, yes. and then they bring that negative energy back to the departments. And I, now I'm not going to say I've never complained. I'm not going to say I've never gossiped about other officers, but it's negative. So you're exposed to negativity on the internal side of the police department, and then you go out there and, ex and you're exposed to negativity on the outside with the risks. And you mean to tell me that you're not going to just actively cope with that and then come home and then just be a, a positive person? Mm. It, it's impossible. I wasn't trained on this. Had I been trained, maybe my career would have worked out a little bit different, but whatever. I mean, you know, God, I trust God's timing. But I realized when I was getting sick, like I never used to get sick, but I realized when I was getting sick, when I was getting so tense that I was always tired and, and physically tense, or when I was really turning into just a negative, hopeless person, something had to give. And then in January of 2020, I learned for the first time after 12 years of being on the job, 12 years, I learned that more police officers took their own life by suicide in 2019, 2018, 2017 than were actually killed in the line of duty. Wow. And I thought to myself, I did, I just, I, I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute, I've been on the job 12 years. Why did I not know this? And then I opened up my heart. I said, I have to do something. And I just, a thought came to my mind, write a book. I was like, write a book? What? I mean, it's almost like I slapped my head. Like, did I just hear that? <laughs> So I began to work early mornings, late evenings on my book, Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue, really researching, but also based on my experiences of going through depression, anxiety, the addiction, uh, post-traumatic stress. And I published it in April of 2020. 
and I know it's helped a lot of police officers. I know it's helped people who are outside of law enforcement. But I basically go into how what I've mentioned several times already, how the brain's not exp- not wired to see what we see. You have to actively cope. But there's also a possibility that if you feel stuck, if you feel hopeless, if you feel like there's no point in going on, you literally the brain literally has the ability if, if you make an effort to commit to just working on something, praying more, doing something that needs to get done at the house, or making a goal for yourself to achieve something that's that's reachable. The brain literally has the ability to create new cells and new wirings within the brain to to mold you into an, a new person in a way, a new personality. And it's amazing. And when I learned this, I started acting on it and act, and making like a morning routine. I had to have my morning routine each and every morning rather than just getting out of bed, dealing with the kids, putting on the uniform, and going into work. No, I had to make time for my brain to work on mindset and then make time for exercise, for physical fitness, which also can help improve our mood. I went on this, and I said I'm going – I wrote the book, and then I wrote in September of 2020, uh, I came out with uh, 101 health tips for police officers. I still feel called to help other police officers because I know some that are miserable. But yet I can see it all across the country where we see what cops are going through and they don't feel supported. And unfortunately, some of them get to a point where they don't feel like there's any point in going on. They don't even feel good about themselves. Like the the incident at the Capitol in, on January 6th, there's been, I believe, four police officers since then that, that worked that riot to to take their own life by suicide. Oh, my. That's so sad. It's so sad. And uh, so that's that's the mission now. Like I said, I'm I'm part time police now, but I'm an, I'm very active advocate for police officer wellness. And and I don't come to any cop, any any person as just some know it all. I come to them as someone who has been through the pain, right? And has and has been through challenging times. But just to tell them, like, look, your brain has the ability to get through this. You just have to make a, a commitment to yourself. And put your put your more trust in God rather than on earthly things, which can include the job. One of the things I notice uh, looking on Amazon on both of your books, they're all five star reviews. And my question to you is, and what I think would be a good idea is for people to buy this book to even if they don't know a policeman, but to give to someone and get it into the libraries, get, you know, locally, get it into, um, do you have any other suggestions? Because this is definitely a message that needs to get out there. It is. I would suggest get it. They're very affordable. They're on Amazon. That's the only place they are is on Amazon. Okay. I'm self-published. Okay. But bring it to a police department and write a heartfelt letter. That's a good idea. Okay. Bring it to a police department, sheriff's office, or if you know a law enforcement officer, pass it along and and, and just say the stats don't lie. I mean, back okay. in 2018, Psychology Today came out with a study showing that 20 to 30 percent of police officers on patrol battle substance abuse. And you can't tell me the job has gotten any less stressful now. Right. And then the Department of Justice came out with a study. Fifteen percent of police officers are battling post-traumatic stress uh, symptoms. I mean, th- th- we're talking thousands of officers here, and and I just hope that like there are certain things that police officers are trained to do, and to and to have it become an instinct, so that when an external threat or an external risk is presented, they know what to do without even thinking about it. But I want them just to be 
I want them to be just as aware about the internal risk, the internal threats, and to have the answer for it just as instinctively as they do the external risks and threats. Now, it's great to have the book available, but also are you thinking in the future of having another means available? This Because this needs to be exposed not just within your own community, obviously, or what what you can reach you know, on the internet. Now, I know you have a YouTube channel. Is that one of the avenues that you're using? Yes, the 10 Code Mindset. And I, that channel is growing. I, I'm very shocked at how Dead. it's kind of growing pretty quick now. And uh, the 10 Code Mindset is just there for police officers and those looking, looking more curious into the job. But uh, I have that channel. But I have been speaking. I, I have spoken with uh, government agencies on some training. I spoke okay. at a statewide, I, I spoke at a statewide law enforcement training officers conference a few weeks ago. I spoke at a, uh, a police recruit class two weeks ago, and I'm going to speak at another one tomorrow. So I'm all about going where I need to go to speak and get this message out as well. Good. Excellent. Now, what can we do besides buying the book and sharing the book? What else can we do? Pray, obviously, but pray for law enforcement, but also if an officer comes by and a lot of people say, thank you for your service. And I am, please don't give me, please don't get the wrong impression. I'm not saying that is a horrible thing to say. Thank you for your service can sound so generic sometimes. Right. (laughs) I I would ask people to be specific. Like if you see an officer at a parade and you feel safer because they're there, go up and say, I'm glad you're here. Even though, even if you were told to be here, I, my family and I feel safer. That office will we'll probably appreciate that. If you're at a restaurant and the officers are there, I mean, now this happened to me more during the drive-through. I'd be going through a drive-through and I pull up to the window and they would say, "Here, like, here's your food. You're good. The person in front of you paid for it." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah, I mean, it was just that's so it was, cool. it was so heartwarming because yes, it, it was just so heartwarming because it's like there were times when I thought that society was just all bad. It was just mm-hmm. all bad people, and to, for someone to do something like that. It would just bring me back, and I'd just be like, "Wow, they're nice people." I don't. I'm only dealing with a small fraction of the population, but gosh, that's so easy to forget. I think you made an incredibly valid point because this is, you know, just in general conversation or people when they're watching TV and they see something that happens. Just as police live in that negative world, people put them there too. You know, the general public puts them in that negativity. And I've done exactly what you said, you know, by saying thank you for your service. But because I didn't know what else to say. But that is awesome to think, you know, let's go one more step. Let's go a step deeper. Let's admonish them for something specific. I think that's great. Let's make their day. Look what they put on the line for us. And is that kind of what you're saying? And also, yes, and just be specific with how you really feel. But that could, that leads me into my point. Uh, Next point. I have had people who wanted to talk about the controversial subject of, of controversial subjects and incidents that other police officers have been involved in. And I'm not, I have never strayed away from those conversations. And you'll, you'll, you'll find that a lot of police officers are very open to having those conversations. That's good. So if you're, if you're curious about, why did something unfold the way it was? First off, every officer is probably going to say, look, I wasn't, if they don't know every detail, they're going to, they're going to tell you that because the details matter. But also I've had conversations, particularly when I was in the schools where there were students that did not like the police officers at all. 
I mean, there was one young man when I was a police, when I was a school resource officer, he had a family member who died while in police custody. And it was investigated by the state agency. Every officer was cleared, but come on. I mean, he was a teenager and that happened to him. Obviously, he looked at me and only saw the deceased family member. I had to have the empathy to respect his anger, to respect his sadness. Our first encounter was not good at all. But after a few weeks and some people, you know, some people uh, that knew him and encouraged him, I played in a basketball game, a pickup basketball game out of uniform. <laughs> I played in a basketball game for a mentorship program that he was a part of. <laughs> and, and what do you know? At the end of the game, we shook hands. And a few months later, at, during the fall semester, I invited him to a veteran's breakfast and he came with me and they had him fill out a, sh- a sheet and it said, how do you know the veteran who invited you? And he put friend. Oh my goodness. So I'm just saying, wow. So I'm just saying like officers have to have the conversations, but people have to be willing to talk with officers also. Just don't say like accusatory statements. It, it, you don't know that there's a person behind that badge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ask them what their opinion is. And if they're uncomfortable talking about it, then, Heck, just go to the next one. <laughs> but it, it, it's it's something that police know they have to do now is have conversations with people. That's that's really that really helps bridge the gap. And people might not agree on everything, but then again, like a college professor told me, if we all agreed on everything, the world would be a very boring place. No kidding. Absolutely. Well, you've covered a lot of area. In the post show notes, there's going to be all the information you need about Scott's books and everything that we talked about today and I encourage you to share, share, share. Now in conclusion, is there anything you want to do to sum it up, Scott? I would just say for anyone out there going through a hard time in which we all are being challenged by certain things considering the pandemic, no matter what it is, just like the title of your podcast, Carol, never ever give up hope. But when I was going through hard times, whether it was post-traumatic stress or the addiction, I would get onto myself and I would say, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why would I just, that was awful. That was awful talk. Mm-hmm. Talk to yourself in a loving way because, and, and talk to yourself, talk to yourself that way because God loves you and you, you have no right to hate yourself. He created you for a purpose. Why, why would you hate that? So I would say good self-talk and just being committed to it, committed to something with, with a morning routine, morning prayer can lift you up no matter what you're going through and just stick with it. And, but, and, and, you know, when you think you have nothing left, you just got to keep going. And then eventually things will start to opportunities will start to come up or you can start to influence people in a good way. Uh, I, I gave up not, not in the sense of wanting to take my own life, but there were plenty of times I thought about giving up, but I just kept showing up for other people, just kept showing up for my spiritual health and, and uh, for for the one who created me, and things have started to work out. Uh, so that's what I would that's what I would say. Your attitude is coming across very clearly, even on this on this interview. And what that tells me is that you have not allowed this negativity to control you, and that you've taken the reins and you are giving, and not just you know living in that negative atmosphere that relates to the job that you do. And I really, really appreciate that because I have interviewed people where their negativity, no matter what their words are saying, their negativity is what people hear. And with you, oh yes, not absolutely. With you, there's the warmth, there's the sincerity, 
there's the uh, empathy, there's the encouragement, all that has come through. And for that, I applaud you and I thank you. And we will definitely get this word out and as many channels as we can, because you only need one person to make a difference and that one person touches another person, etc., etc. So let's take this torch and run with it. And we thank you for what you shared today, Scott, on never, never, ever give up hope. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.